Welcome to the Smarter Healthcare Podcast, where we meet the brightest minds transforming healthcare with your host, Kathy Susich. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Episode 10 of the Smarter Healthcare Podcast. Our topic today is the mental health impact of COVID-19 and how technology can play a role in helping patients. Our guest is Krithika Srivats, Vice President of the Health Clinical Center of Excellence at HGS Healthcare, a global business process management company. Krithika and I discussed how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected mental health, which populations are more impacted, and how predictive analytics can play a role in improving the situation. Here's our conversation. Hi, Krithika. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi, Kathy. Very glad to be here. Thanks for this opportunity. Now, could you start by talking a little about HGS Healthcare and the work that you do for the organization? Absolutely. Um, HGS has been providing healthcare services for the health plans and providers for about 20 plus years. Uh, we support our health, clan, health, health clients across the spectrum of administrative and clinical services. So a lot of the work that we do actually, you know, are in the administrative side in terms of building products, selling those products to the, their members, enrolling their members, managing their entire life cycle with us um, in terms of customer experience management, provider experience management, all of that. A lot of what we also do is on the clinical side of things. So when you look at the spend is predominantly coming from how people are not managing their health. And so a lot of our interventions, which includes our utilization management services and population health management programs that really work with individuals with various vulnerabilities across their physical health, mental health, and removing social barriers so they can, you know, we can help them lead some healthy, make some healthy choices with respect to their health conditions. My background, though, I'm an occupational therapist and, you know, with my master's and 15 plus years of focus specifically in dealing with neuro, um, neurodegenerative and neuromuscular conditions uh, for, the, for the elderly population. And I've done a lot of work specifically in the areas of Alzheimer's disease, stroke recovery, etc. Uh, I lead the clinical practice for HGS and I'm also responsible for new solutions and capabilities. Now, COVID-19 has left many people in isolation for the last six months. What have been the mental health-related impacts on the general population? That's a very good question. There is ample research suggesting that you know, COVID-19 pandemic has significantly impacted mental health in the general population. Uh, in fact, there are certain surveys, especially uh, the one that was done by Kaiser Family Foundation, which actually finds that people who already have a risk factor for the mental health issues, including anxiety, eating disorder, etc., have a higher potential to be led all the way into depression. Uh, in addition to that, I think there's also a significant rise in some of the downstream impact of it, there's been like a rise in substance abuse all of a sudden, you know, we, the same survey finds, I think about 12% of folks are now newly addicted to substance abuse since the pandemic. So we know that, you know, there is, there is significant impact. But one thing that I also want to use this um, time to talk about is the pandemic has actually helped us look at human resiliency in a different context. So um, in uh, occupational therapists, for long have been using this framework or reference called adaptive behavior. Essentially what it is, is the ability of an individual to get along in their environment with great success and least conflict. And a lot of times this adaptiveness is also a measure of their social competence. So if you look at people, you know, they react very differently to 
to stimuli, changing stimuli, like like the COVID in itself, on one extreme, you have people who are pretty resilient uh, in terms of, you know, how uh, how they are able to quickly digest what's happening and, and uh, come to terms with it and have a fairly non-conflicting way of dealing with it. On the other extreme, you have total chaos, total conflict, and most people fall somewhere in that spectrum of, of coping. Um, so these are called defense mechanisms or coping strategies. And uh, how these coping mechanisms are actually effective is a function of the feedback that they get. So there's an intrinsic feedback, which is you know how you feel good about, how, how you're able to effectively cope with that situation for yourself. And then there's an extrinsic feedback, which is very dependent on the society. So the social competence, that's where it comes into to play because now all of a sudden you've taken away that ability to get that social feedback as a result of the lockdown and quarantine. And so just within this context of adaptive framework, we you know it's 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 a significant driver towards those risk factors for mental health, such as you know anxiety and high conflict, etc. So overall I would say that you know if if the, the impact of the lockdown has been pretty hard on people with mental health predisposition or with pre-existing mental health issues. Are there any populations that have been impacted more than others when it comes to mental health during the pandemic? Absolutely. Um, in fact, there's a New England Journal of Medicine that recently um, found that uncertainties of life as a result of COVID and, and, and the public health emergency actually has had adverse impact on mental health in individuals. Um, vulnerability, there's two types of vulnerability with relation to COVID, right? Uh, typically, vulnerabilities can be physical, mental, social barriers, a whole bunch of things, clinical. However, specific to COVID, if you look at the vulnerability, vulnerabilities, it's either because they have a, people have a high exposure to getting COVID or upon being exposed to COVID, they have a higher risk of uh, having a debilitating outcome. So your high-risk exposure vulnerability is probably for a healthcare worker who's treating people with COVID day in and day out. But here you have on the other end, people who upon contracting COVID would have a horrible outcome. Um, and that type of vulnerability is even more what we are finding today uh, is impacting elderly. It's about uh, research, you know, has it all the way from 50 to 70 percent of elderly uh, of the deaths have been in people with higher vulnerabilities as a result of COVID. And, and so that, again, goes back to some of this resiliency. People above the age of 70, as it is, have a lower resiliency. There's also another interesting fact. Most people pre-COVID and who are above the age of 70 actually found, were found to have complained of social isolation and loneliness. About at least, I think, 30, 33% of folks were found to have complained of social isolation pre-COVID, and that's significantly exacerbated since the COVID lockdown for them. And these elderly have a much higher vulnerability when it comes to you know, managing their day-to-day -day chronic conditions. So yes, absolutely, it, it, has, it has been a um, major issue. Uh, social isolation has been a major issue, and that's been one of the biggest vulnerability. What barriers to care has COVID-19 created on the population, especially for individuals who are more vulnerable? 
So like we said, you know, typically barriers to care can be related to physical, clinical, social, economic, um, sometimes racial and, and health literacy. All of it really contributes to, you know, sort of barriers to care. But since the lockdown and the social distancing, we've seen a rise in barriers impacting healthy lifestyle and vulnerable population, especially the ones who have the lower resiliency. In fact, I think uh, a modern healthcare uh, report and several other reports actually really talk about American population putting off healthcare needs since uh, the start of COVID. So that, that in itself can actually be, uh, like for elders who have, for whom routine medical care is very critical to either preventing uh, hospitalization or preventing drastic decline in function, that's a huge barrier in itself. But if you look at uh, you know, other, other areas besides preventive care, people are dependent on food bank for their daily meals. And people are dependent on neighbors and others to help them go pick up their groceries or meals or medication. And that has been largely impacted as a result of COVID. There's also another study that talks about racial uh, inequalities, racial racial and ethnic uh, sensitivities, which actually exacerbates during social isolation because people have language barriers. So if you're in a community and as it is, you're unable to like have that social connectedness because of language barriers. Now, all of a sudden, you take away the little that they have by way of family coming and helping them. And these are all adding significantly to as a result of COVID. And then one other thing that I do want to talk about is, um, in again, going back to occupational therapy, there is a framework of reference called model of human occupation. Um, it's nothing but understanding the perspectives of what meaningfulness and purposefulness is, uh, what that does to the mental health of people. When you're given an opportunity to fulfill your role through meaningful engagement, that contributes to mental well-being, right? So for example, let's take an example of a grandma who's babysitting her daughter's child, and the daughter is a healthcare worker. And that meaningful engagement that the grandma has is a very big component of her mental mental health and mental well-being. And now, as a result of COVID, now you've taken that away. So across the board, we see that barriers to care, not just from you know what used to be lack of transportation and things like that, lack of meals, it's just com- compounded as a result of not being able to leverage on the social infrastructure that they could, that an individual could in the past. And how might mental health conditions impact someone's physical health as well in terms of chronic conditions or mortality? Um, That's a very good question. Actually, if you look at the body of literature, this large uh, research that's been conducted that evidences mental health's impact on chronic condition and physical health. But what is little known is in the pathway of this overlap. There's a study by Ornberger in the Journal of Social Science and Medicine, which talks about the effect of lifestyle choices and social competence and social capital on the impact of adherence to their recommended treatment program. Physical inactivity is considered to be one of the leading correlated cause of mental health and physical health. In addition to that, cognitive decline has a reciprocal relationship with mental health. So people who have uh, the inability to plan and execute on tasks and lower memory, either as a result of mental health uh, or vice versa, the cognitive decline itself is you know, uh, leading to that lack of social engagement resulting in mental health issues. Those are all um, common impact that we see on how that translates into physical health. But anecdotally speaking, um, I used to, I used to uh, 
you know, managed uh, post-stroke recovery unit. And one thing that we saw was at least a third of the people with stroke were diagnosed with post-stroke depression. And what we saw in our rehab programs is that people who had undiagnosed or untreated depression had suboptimal recovery simply from not being able to attend their rehab program, not being motivated, having apathy and loss of connectedness to their to their rehab program. All of these really resulted in poor outcomes. And we see this in our chronic care management programs as well um, in our population health management programs. People who have a diagno- a diagnosis of depression and have been untreated really are unable to stick to their compliance programs when it comes to nutrition in managing their diabetes or in managing their medication. Um, one other concept that I want to quickly introduce here is something called frailty, and, and there's a lot of uh, research around this. Um, they're also finding that frailty is nothing but it's a condition in older people. It's characterized by loss of physiological reserve, uh, which causes increased clinical vulnerability and results in poor outcomes. In frailty, we came across a research that specifically talked about the increase in frailty was associated with a subsequent increase in depression, indicating that there's a shared vulnerability. So we know that most of the chronic conditions, even though it's not a direct impact, there's little evidence that says that just because somebody has a diagnosis of depression or schizophrenia, their their heart failure is going to exacerbate or not. It's not so directly correlated to that, but this shared vulnerabilities that's highly evidenced. Now let's start to pivot a little bit. We've heard a lot about predictive analytics technology over the last few years. How can predictive analytics models provide a look at someone's overall social connectedness? Um, that's a fantastic question. It's a timely question. Well, there is no clear-cut way to identify people with the risk of social isolation or social connectedness, more so Uh, than ever in our history, we have the opportunity to look at the whole person by looking at data that used to be available to us beyond just looking at health plans uh, claims data. But historically, you know, when you wanted to identify what, the, what are the risk factors, you went to the physician or the now nowadays the health insurance company who, who maintain a fairly large profile of an individual across all the diagnoses and conditions that they've been treated for. But if you look at that, that's just the medical data. Whole person is a lot more than that, right? So when you're looking at social connectedness, you really need to know uh, who are they interacting with? What are, the, what are their relationships? Surprisingly, a couple of things that we use in our um, programs is consumer data, consumer spend and marketing data. That tells us a lot about, you know, uh, who, how many people live in their house. Do they have the ability to interact? Do, do they have a uh, good infrastructure for caregiving support? Uh, where do they spend their money? Do they go out and spend it on, you know, having, do they dine outside? Do they go for movies or are they just buying things for the house? So those are things that gives, give us a lot more information nowadays in addition to the claims data. The opportunity, however, exists with marrying these consumer data, some of the claims data, in more prospective information in terms of you know, um, lab values, et cetera, with public health information. So if you look at connecting with the public health entities, they have the information on who's filed for unemployment, who's on food bank, who, who's on food stamps, who's on housing vouchers. Uh, you know, so, so you have some of those social and, and economical vulnerabilities that you're able to identify through some of the public health uh, data structure. And then marry that to the clinical information that we have, now, now we are able to really identify not just who is socially disconnected, but who has that social connectedness as an actual barrier? Because not everybody who's 
So there's this one of the studies that talks about how social isolation itself is not the issue as much as the loneliness that is being perceived by that individual as a result of that social isolation. So if you want to really target that individual who's lonely as a result of the social isolation, we need you know, data that's beyond just what clinical indicators are giving us. And that's where the real opportunity exists is in marrying that public health information. The social, um, social enterprises, they carry a ton of very valuable information. Medicare has this initiative called Blue Button that, that gives us a lot more in terms of at least understanding diagnoses that might put people at risk for social isolation uh, in terms of looking at the whole person. But beyond that, we need to really marry some of this valuable insights across different entities. So then how can medical professionals then use these insights to reach individuals where they are and really get them the best care suited for their needs? You asked one of my most favorite, uh, you used one of my most favorite terminology, which is meeting people where they are. Uh, I think uh, today at a philosophical level, the most under-researched area is in healthcare are interventions to meet people where they are. Um, we are a long way from that. However, specifically in the context of COVID and related to isolation and loneliness, the analytical insights really are when it's, when it's identified to specifically target and remove barriers, we need to leverage some of the technology, uh, technological advances. In fact, we've seen about a third, a 33, 30 to 33% increase in digital adoption in even the vulnerable population during COVID for telehealth and telemedicine technology. So um, with that, we need to leverage some of those technology to be able to get people to the care that they need as soon as possible. There's also a shortage in trained uh, formal caregivers, um, specifically in the mental health areas. So some of the social organizations, they've sort of decoupled what, how they approach, how they intervene, especially when there's a large scale rise in crisis. So you have, you have, you leverage upon volunteers, you leverage upon um, community, community resources, health coaches that are available in the community to get to those people and then hand off and triage it to those trained clinicians for the specific interventions. But at least now you have a mechanism for people to identify, acknowledge, take information about them, and then triage it to the clinician. So in that process, you don't make the person just wait around on getting them the right trained help, and you have a process and mechanism for them to be connected along the way. One other thing that I want to quickly mention in this context of meeting people where they are, uh, an area of opportunity for us is really looking at therapies such as cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational therapy. And these are uh, well evidenced to be highly effective in people who are at the earliest stages of or lower risk of really having a full-blown mental health episode. And a lot of these coping strategies really look at the whole person again and not just at the current moment of what they are going through, but also connects with them at, uh, at, the, at, the, at the physiological as well as spiritual context to be able to help them cope with some of the issues. And those are very effective and transient um, mental health issues that people are going through as a result of COVID, such as anxiety and sleep disorder, et cetera. So I think leveraging some of these tools and techniques that are out there, in addition to the you know, the professional caregiving, that's, that's really the way to go to meet people where they are. 
And are there any other resources that are available for people who might be in need of mental health care right now? I'm not a mental health professional, so I'm not qualified to answer this in whole. However, as an occupational therapist, we focus on whole person or person-centered approach. The holistic care is actually a multidisciplinary engagement. So uh, in order to identify and address the lowest, uh, to, to address the, the larger mental health issues, there are several tiers of that which require to be addressed at various levels. So for example, an occupational therapist can help plan and manage their day amidst all of the challenges that they are facing as a result of the depression or anxiety so that at the output that is required of them in terms of managing their day-to-day activities, their self-care, their you know, caregiving responsibilities are not significantly uh, you know, hindered. Similarly, there are other interventions, but again, going back to leveraging telehealth, um, leveraging social entrepreneurship, there are so many referral resources available today specifically for mental health issues uh, with, the, with, the, with, with the social entrepreneurships, really leveraging them. And then also looking at body of uh, evidence that's available in alternate therapies um, and, and using those as part of the coping strategies and, and, uh, and some of their interventions are very critical. And, and that's probably where we need to uh, spend a little bit more time and research in. And let's look ahead five years in what ways do you anticipate 2020 will have changed our care of people around both their mental and physical health? Very good question. Very well needed uh, question. Again, cautiously stating my opinion as a non-mental health professional, the optimistic view is the stark realization in human resilience, including but not limited to digital adoption. Um, that's that's uh, and, and historically, there's been perceptions that Vulnerable people cannot use uh, digital technology, and and COVID has sort of um, slewed some of those myths. In fact, uh, there was a Northern California counseling center that showed a reduction of no-show in in their mental health services from 60% before COVID to 11% post-COVID. All of a sudden now, because they have the telehealth provider network expanded, uh, as well as they have multilingual capabilities in their expanded network of telehealth providers. Those are all very, very important um, uh, measures to adopt and become an, uh, in becoming a mainstream uh, mental health management um, resource. In addition to that, I think there is an opportunity for public health and regulatory uh, con- convergence and collaboration between you know, health plans, providers, public health entities, et cetera, not just in data sharing, but also being able to sort of hand off the patient to the various functions seamlessly so that care doesn't get interrupted. So those are absolutely two areas where I feel, you know, um, if we if we make the right investments and right collaboration, five years from now should look much more positive. Krithika, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this timely and important conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Smarter Healthcare Podcast. To learn more about HGS Healthcare, follow the company on Twitter at Team HGS. You can also follow me on Twitter at KSusich or at SmartHCPodcast feel free to get in touch with comments or guest suggestions. To listen to more episodes, visit our website at www.smarthcpodcast.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. 
I'd appreciate if you would subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.